Australian Parliament was in a state of disquiet. The Liberal Party had the majority in the Senate and the Labor Party had the majority in the House of Representatives. When the House of Representatives passed a bill, it had to go to the Senate for ratification. And this difference of leadership in each of the Houses of Parliament caused quite a stir. In October of 1975, the Liberal Party said that the Senate would not pass the money bills until Prime Minister Gough Whitlam called a general election. Not passing the money bills would mean that the government would stop. No public servants would be paid and the tasks they do would not be completed. They were responsible for administering federal services like Medicare, pensions and welfare payments among other things. Whitlam wanted his government to see out its full term and refused to call a general election. Amid meetings between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and both the Leader of the Opposition, Malcolm Fraser, and the Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam, there was a swing in the opinion polls towards the government. Whitlam then said to Fraser that he would call a half-Senate election if the money bills weren't passed. With a swing in popularity towards the government, Whitlam hoped that this would either grant him a majority of votes in the Senate, or that it would scare Fraser into passing the money bills and allow the country to continue to serve its people. Neither happened. What did happen was Sir John Kerr called Malcolm Fraser, the opposition leader, to his residence, where he was shown to a waiting room. Moments later, Gough Whitlam entered the Governor-General's house, unaware that Fraser was in another room waiting. The Governor-General then dismissed Gough Whitlam, the democratically elected Prime Minister of Australia. After Whitlam left, the Governor-General commissioned Malcolm Fraser as the new Prime Minister. That afternoon, the Governor-General's secretary went to Parliament House and read the proclamation dissolving Parliament, which read in part, Now therefore I, Sir John Robert Kerr, the Governor-General of Australia, do, by this my proclamation, dissolve the Senate and the House of Representatives, given under my hand and the Great Seal of Australia on 11th November 1975. God save the Queen. This statement read by the Governor-General's secretary on the steps of Parliament House brought a now iconic reply from the dismissed Whitlam. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. You're listening to BRL Moments in Time, a podcast about the history of Brisbane Rugby League. And this is 1975. G'day everybody, welcome to BRL Moments in Time, episode number 15. I'm Chris Leeson and as always here with Dave Teagle. How, da- how are you going Dave? Yeah, doing fine, thank you Chris. That's good. Uh, there were some pretty big happenings in 1975. I know you were around but probably not old enough to remember the dismissal. No Chris, I was only three at that stage so I wasn't a huge follower of what was happening in Parliament. Okay, well I remember it pretty well. I was uh, a teenager at, at school and it happened uh, middle of the day. I remember it filtering through the playground and uh, we all got the news and uh, I know the school where I went to there was no real love of the of the monarchy and uh, and whatever mm. else and there was this overarching feeling that um, that Gough Whitlam had been elected as the Prime Minister and John Kerr had been given his job by the Prime Minister 
And here he was representing the Queen and he's kicking the Prime Minister that we elected out. So yeah, yep. we were all pretty indignant about that. And it could have had something to do with the actual school that we went to. And so there was a fair bit of a Labor following. Yep. Or it might have just been that uh, we didn't really like the monarchy. And yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was probably just us. Yep. No, well, I just remember growing up um, when I first sort of heard about it that it seemed quite unfair for this plum sort of in his mouth kind of chap to... Uh, kick out the then Prime Minister. But then I was a bit surprised that uh, in the uh, subsequent election, Labor got their butts kicked. So I wasn't quite sure. It was a bit of a mystery to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I do remember all of that. And it was pretty weird because, uh, you know, there had been a swing towards Labor before the whole thing went down. And then when the whole thing went down, the whole world was on Labor's side because yep. it was just so they were so indignant about how it had all transpired mm. but then when the election came around nobody yeah, went near lost. them so yeah, it was a bit weird it's a mystery yeah anyway can you give us some context what else was happening in 1975 well most of the basics were starting to rise in costs a postage stamp was 10 cents in January and 18 cents by the end of the year there were also slight rises in basic food costs a loaf of bread was about 39 cents and a pint of milk was 24 cents The average salary was still around $7,600 and the average house price in Brisbane was about $24,500. Gough Whitlam was Prime Minister for a time. Joe Bielke-Peterson was the Premier of Queensland and on the 18th of May, the Norman Gunston show first aired on the ABC. Oh, Norman Gunston. Dave, I still love Norman Gunston. He was uh, so irreverent. It was brilliant. And he was also front and centre at uh, Parliament House on the 11th of November in 1975. I remember um, Paul Keating telling him, a young Paul Keating at that stage, backbencher, telling him that uh, this was a serious affair and that Norman <laughs> should have been taking it seriously. <laughs> and Norman put on that very serious face of his and said, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> yeah, I don't think we've seen the likes of Norman Gunston um, before or since. He was an absolute one of a kind. Yeah, he was. And even... And Gary McDonald couldn't reproduce him. When he tried, he had a bit of a nervous breakdown. So yeah, he was yep. certainly one of a kind. Definitely got into the zone, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, on the 1st of July, Medibank was introduced and Australia Post and Telecom were created from the Postmaster General's Department. On the 1st of July, uh, Papua New Guinea gained independence from Australia. But in October, the Balibo Five were killed by Indonesian troops in East Timor. And as we've already heard, on November the 11th, Gough Whitlam was sacked by the then Governor-General, Sir John Kerr. But in terms of footy, there was upheaval aplenty. Coaches were moving here, there and everywhere. Yeah, Dave, that's right. I mean, brothers were hoping that their saviour, Paul Broughton, who had taken them to the grand final in 74, would be the guy to take them that one step further. And unfortunately for the brethren, Paul Broughton got an offer from Sydney and went to Balmain to coach. So Brothers promoted former club captain and international hooker Brian Fitzsimmons to the role. Bob Hagen had moved on from Norths and former Great Britain halfback Tommy Bishop took over as coach. The great Harry Bath came in to coach at Souths, who had been in the mix of good teams for quite a few years, but they were never able to get any real sustained success flowing. West needed a new coach. John Sattler, their captain coach from 1974, had moved on and his original intent was to retire. But Bob Back suggested he give it one more try and come and play at Norths where he wouldn't have the added pressure of coaching and he could enjoy his final season. West were looking for a new coach and they approached Ron Raper. And Raper was still contracted to Redcliffe as a player, but he retired from playing and went to Pertell Park to take on the Panthers' coaching role. West's heralded an influx of Sydney players. 
Harry Cameron, John Armstrong, Pat Kelly, Kel Brown and Greg McCarthy from Easts, Brian Isbester from Wests and Gary Thomas from Parramatta. And they also recruited Steve Creer from Redcliffe and the return of Greg Heading, who was back from a couple of years in Gympie. They were certainly shaping up as a pretty good side and uh, I'd imagine looking forward to the season ahead. A former Brothers winger, Don Alrow, had been the Brothers president for some time and he became the new BRL president, succeeding Bill Hunter. There was more news at Brothers and the player front as well. Now Chris, I can't remember those early years of the Midweek Cup, but I'm sure most people who can remember that first season of the Amco Cup can recall TV Ted Ellery. He was a player for the eventual winners of that season, New South Wales Country's Western Division. He had a shaved head and he was a bit of a live wire forward which endeared him to all, particularly the commentary team, probably because they knew so few of those guys and due to his bald head. Ellery stood out so they made note of him. In 1975, he moved from the bush and he signed with Brothers. Yeah, I remember TV Ted Ellery pretty uh, pretty well, and I think that might be right about the commentary teams. It's, uh, they certainly made a big deal of him, and it's probably because he was so prominent with his, uh, <laughs> with his shaved head there. So while talking about the MK Cup in 1975, the MK Cup was played by all of the Brisbane teams, not just a Brisbane representative side that uh, it did take on later on. Brothers were playing the first MK Cup game on April 16 of 1975 and it was against Balmain. This brought together the pupil and the master as Brothers' former coach Paul Broughton, who was now coaching Balmain, would be up against his apprentice at Brothers, Brian Fitzsimmons. And not long after that, on May the 7th, St George were drawn to play against North's Devils and St George won by 35-16. to Penrith also beat Brisbane South by 37-9 to in the MK Cup. But before the AMCO Cup even got underway, the BRL decided to trial five-point tries for the 1975 Woolies pre-season comp. 18,000 turned up for the first week of Woolies on Friday night. Norths beat Valleys and Wests beat Wynnum. Winning margins can become blown out with five-point tries though. On the Sunday, Redcliffe 25 defeated Easts 10. Souths welcomed new coach Harry Bath with a 28-9 win over Brothers. And at this time, other aspects of league were in the news because Laurie Kavanagh's column talked about the inevitability of jersey sponsors making their way onto BRL jerseys in the very near future. And he wasn't far wrong because by the year after this, in 1976, all of the Brisbane teams and the BRL referees were all running around with sponsors on their jerseys. As Wests win games in Willie's pre-season, newspaper talk was of the ghosts of Norm Pope's 1972 team when West's brilliant attack took almost all before it. Raper certainly had the team humming, but the three West's doctors all tendered their resignation from the club over a disagreement on how players were prepared before playing a match. Initial reports were that it revolved around the correct strapping method for players' ankles. Yeah, I'm not really sure about all of that, but uh, <laughs> there was no more talk of it in the papers, so we just have to go with what's been reported. Yeah, that's rather odd, I'd have yeah. to say. Mm. On the Friday night, March the 21st, Wests, after just one match lost against East in the last round of the pre-season carnival, faced up to Norths in the first semi-final. Souths and Redcliffe were to play the second semi. West beat Norths 25-9, to and Redcliffe beat South 30-7 to pitch West and Redcliffe against each other for the Woolies pre-season final. Uh, West and Redcliffe emerged as the teams to beat after that 1975 Woolies pre-season. They were the two form teams during the competition and both won their semi-finals fairly convincingly. Form didn't lie as Redcliffe beat South 30-7 and after West had beaten North 25-9, 
the Western Redcliffe Grand Final in that Woolies pre-season was certainly pretty entertaining. They fought out a 18-17 final with West taking home the trophy. Despite their pre-season carnival loss, Redcliffe felt good about their chances in 1975 with Muir still at the coaching helm and having signed former Wide Bay fullback Ian Pearce. Pearce travelled an 800km return trip from the Blackbutt Rangers to train and play. This bolstered their depth enormously as both Pearce and Obst could play centre and fullback. But Pearce would get first crack at the fullback job while Tony Obst was playing the Australian off-season in England. And although it began in 1974, newspapers did not know the extent to which the Midweek Cup would be popular. But in 1975, with a year of experience under their belt, the newspaper kept a close eye on what was happening. And on April 3, they noted that the previous day, South Sydney beat Ipswich 37-6. They'd scored 11 tries and only kicked two goals out of 11 attempts. While some Brisbane or Queensland-based teams fared reasonably well in the MK Cup, Many of them were easy fodder for the more seasoned Sydney sides, and those scores were not uncommon. Well, we'll mention the AMCO Cup when necessary, but this podcast is about the BRL, and after only three weeks of BRL competition, brothers led the way. They were unbeaten after two wins and a draw with the Premier's Valleys in a week one rematch of the 1974 Grand Final. Redcliffe and Norths were next, with two wins each, and then followed Valleys, Easts and Wynnum with one win, one draw and one loss each. The Wynnum-Easts draw was a controversial affair. Easts front rower Rod Morris looked to have scored late in the game. He was tackled by Wynnum's hooker Gordon Haig just short of the line, but he fell on his back, rolled and placed the ball over the line. Even though the ball hadn't touched the ground, he was called for a double movement and penalised, and the scores remained at 13 points all. We're only four or five weeks into the season and there were storylines aplenty as scribes worked overtime to keep up with the goings-on in the BRL in April and early May of 1975. But before week four could be played, there was much anticipation of the midweek Amco Cup match with former brothers coach Paul Broughton coaching Balmain against his old team. Also adding spice was the fact that former brothers prop forward Dennis Monte had moved from Canterbury to Balmain. Unfortunately, though, by the time the game rolled around, Monty was out injured and he didn't take the field against his old club. Balmain ended up winning the match 24-16. And one of those storylines, Chris, was a bit concerning. David Falkenmeyer reported that Greg Vivas had temporarily lost sight in his right eye after a head knock and specialists recommended a thorough examination. Yeah, Dave, I've done some research uh, for a number of seasons across the BRL ranging from 1908 all the way through and I can tell you that Vivas had some form in this area. When he was just four years old, he had first-hand experience with footballers losing the side of one eye. Yeah, that's right. His father, then playing for Brisbane, caught a knock on the side of his head. After that knock, he had blurred vision. But when backing up to play for his club side, Souths, he received another knock to the head and had to have an operation to restore the sight in his right eye. He retired from football on the spot. Although Greg had the experience of his dad to fall back on, Vivas was his own man, and he believed things would turn out just fine for him, as they eventually did for his dad. In Greg's case, though, retirement was not on his mind. Yeah, that kind of injury isn't really common, and the fact that the injury had happened to his dad and to him is kind of freaky. Yeah, for sure. Another David Falkmeyer report was that Redcliffe's New Zealand international prop forward, Robert Orchard, was suspended by Redcliffe's administration. He'd been writing a column for a free Redcliffe-based newspaper and had been critical of the club. Redcliffe President Dick Tossaturner said, Orchard was told last week that if he continued to write, he would risk suspension under the terms of his contract. 
He continued, he was suspended. And to follow up on the 2nd of May, Falkenmeyer reported that Orchard was still suspended and would remain suspended until he stopped writing for the Redcliffe newspaper. Orchard said he believed he was within his rights and would continue, even if that meant he doesn't play again during the season. A Redcliffe official responded to Orchard saying, We won't change our minds. Orchard will remain under suspension as long as he continues to write. We will miss him, but the game's bigger than the man. In week four then, the suspension of Orchard didn't really hurt Redcliffe's form as they beat Valleys 25-7. It was just Valleys' second loss of the year, but injured team captain Marty Scanlon was itching to get onto the field. He was training hard with a plaster cast on his left arm as he was recovering from a fractured wrist. I feel like tearing the plaster off, getting my wrist strapped and getting straight back into the game, said Scanlon. I think my wife can't wait for me to get back onto the field either. I'm a bit more cranky than usual these days. And after that loss to Redcliffe and another loss to Winner Manly, Valleys dropped six players from their team. Scanlon just wanted to get onto the field to ease his frustration of watching his teammates struggle. Yeah, that Valley story would need further telling as the season progresses. Across the league, though, there were stories of drama unfolding. On Anzac Day at Lang Park, Norths beat Wests 19-7. There was nothing extraordinary about that, but the story of the game was that in a three-minute period, referee Stan Scamp ordered from the field of play a player, a coach, two club first aid men and a doctor. Oh, whoa, whoa, Dave. Okay, let's deal with those one at a time. What was going on at Lang Park at Anzac Day? Who was the player that was sent off? Yeah, no, it's a good one, Chris. Norths had an English import fullback, Jeff Wraith, and he was sent off for headbutting 15 minutes into the second half. Norths were up 17 points to two at that stage. A week prior, teammate John Sattler, who we might remember, was playing with Norths in 75, was sent off for the same offence and received a two-week suspension. Wraith was unlucky to strike an unimpressed judiciary who sentenced him to four weeks. Hmm, all right, well, that's pretty easy to describe. Is there a bigger storyline to the rest of it? Two first aid men, a doctor and a coach? Well, it's a bit convoluted, but it all happened after North winger Bruce Warwick had scored a try from a 50-metre burst down the sideline. While Warwick was lining up the conversion, North's captain coach halfback, Tommy Bishop, went to the sideline for treatment to a cut head. Here's where it all transpires. Bernie Pramberg, who was a regular BRL referee, was running touch that day. Bernie was on the ball and he reported to Scamp that the doctors and the trainer, sorry, the doctor and the trainers were treating Bishop on the field. Well, that would be illegal then uh, because in 75, injuries of that kind had to be treated off the field of play and teams could either replace the injured player or play short until treatment was received and the player returned to the field. Yeah, that's right. And referee Scamp told Warwick to wait with his conversion attempt and ran to the sideline and told the two first aid men and the doctor to remove themselves from the field of play. (laughs) It's almost comical, isn't it? (laughs) Almost, but it's not over yet. Scamp also sent off a coach and it was a part of this whole situation. While Scamp was off at the sideline telling the medicos that they had to get off the field and telling Tommy Bishop to leave the field for treatment, West's coach, Ron Raper, had come out to the field of play and walked down to near the corner post to speak to his players as they congregated behind the try line while waiting for Warwick to take his conversion attempt. Well, good old Bernie Pramberg was on the ball again and he reported Raper's presence to Scamp. Scamp again told Warwick to hold up as Scamp went to Raper to order him from the field as well. (laughs) Raper said later that if Norths were allowed three medicos to attend to Tommy, who's also the Norths coach, he thought he was entitled to issue a few instructions to his players too. That's a pretty tenuous argument from Raper. (laughs) It probably explains partly why he was so successful, being prepared to try pretty much anything to get his win. Yeah, that's stretching the rules a bit. Yeah, a little bit. 
Well, at this time of the season, Redcliffe's fullback uh, Tony Obst appeared for the first time in the season after having a playing stint in England during the Australian off-season. Laurie Kavanagh wrote, Looking leaner and faster, Obst was a major threat to Valleys in everything that he did. And Redcliffe coach Barry Muir said, Tony looks really good to me and he's set for a big season. But his early season replacement at Redcliffe, Ian Bunny Pearce, was given first shot at representative honours. Even though both Obst and Pearce played for Brisbane in 75, Pierce was selected in that first city side. Yeah, just as an aside, Chris, as a kid, I used to laugh at that nickname, Bunny Pierce. Um, it didn't sound like a very appropriate name for a big, tough footy player. So I'm not sure if he, uh, where he got that nickname from. Uh, but anyway, with regards to that city side, the QRL made it known that players selected to play city versus country were allowed to play for their clubs on Saturdays and then play in the Sunday city versus country match. But if they were selected for Queensland, they would be unable to play club football until the state series was completed, which means that they would miss three club matches. Yeah, and whether they played club footy the day before or not, the City team was selected, and despite some criticism of the team selected, as some players were out of form in 75 compared with their 74 form, it didn't seem to matter because City won 51-2. to Wow. Also, because the QRL had put a ban on players selected for the state team from playing club footy while the series was underway, the BRL stepped in and moved fixtures back a week to alleviate some of the pain for some clubs. And after the Queensland City Country game, a South Queensland side was selected to play New South Wales Country, and New South Wales Country won 27-14. This put some concern into the state selectors until the annual New South Wales City Country game was played and New South Wales Country beat their city cousins by 19-9. to Country teams had some success, though, as Wayne Lindenberg led Toowoomba to a 22-13 win over North Sydney in the AMCO Cup. They'd progressed to play last year's BRL Premier's Valleys, who secured a first-round bye due to their Premier status. Meanwhile, back in clubland, Valleys received a boost of sorts, with Marty Scanlon and Hugh O'Doherty returning from long-term injuries to boost the diehards, who were missing state players Fitzpatrick, Crilly and Strudwick. This was on the back of John McCabe also returning from injury a couple of weeks earlier and Russell Hughes finally finding some form and being promoted from reserve grade. Winner Manley though, who'd been riding fairly well so far in 75, got news that Nev Hornery was out with a broken arm. They were also missing Lou Platts, Bob Clapham and John Rhodes as well. So at the end of the first round of fixtures, the latter red, Redcliffe and Norths on top with 10 points each. Winner Manley was just a point behind on nine, with Wests rounding out the top four on eight points. Just outside that top four were Brothers and Easts on seven points, then Valleys on three and Souths on two. Although Valleys had O'Doherty and Scanlon out for the entire first round of fixtures, to have the diehards on only three points after only one win against last place Souths in the whole first round was unusual to say the least. Must yeah. have hurt you, Chris. <laughs> It's another one of those selective memory things, Dave. I don't have much of a recall of that 75 season. <laughs> no, he blanked it. Yeah. <laughs> so Marty Scanlon was straight away back into form to drag Valleys into a close contest with Brothers at the beginning of the second round. But it was another loss to the diehards and it would have left coach Henry Holloway scratching his head and looking forward to a game without his star halfback and prop forward about to play for Queensland. Before the interstate matches were underway, the ABC released Gary McDonald's creation on the unsuspecting public. This character was so popular and so out there that in future years, when McDonald was asked to resurrect him, as I said before, he became so anxious he had a nervous breakdown. 
There'd only ever be one Norman Gunston, and the mid 70s was just about the right time for him to exist. It's the Norman Gunston Show! Thank you, thank you. What a wonderful, warm, terrific audience. Uh, call, call, blah, blah. Thank you, thank you, thank you. As someone who grew up with Norman as a backdrop to my teenage years, I thank Gary for those moments of pure joy. But back to the interstate matches. That Queensland team to play New South Wales on Wednesday, the 21st of May at Lang Park in 1975 was Ian Pearce, John Rhodes, Tony Obst, Peter Lease, Harry Cameron, Jeff Richardson, Ross Strudwick, Ian Tiny, Lou Platts, John Payne, David Wright, John Lang and John Crilly. And on the bench were Rod Morris, Peter Connell from Toowoomba and Redcliffe halfback Chris Anderson. With Queensland last beating New South Wales in 1970, although they'd been so close with a number of recent draws, the odds were against them. But Barry Muir and his men in Maroon didn't worry about the odds or the players in blue opposite them. They just tackled their hearts out and won the game 14 points to 8. Although the entire forward pack contributed mightily to the win, Ross Strudwick and John Payne were pivotal to the team's success. Payne's smooth handling and ability to set up his support players was key to Queensland's ability to keep moving forward and exerting pressure on the New South Wales side. And Strudwick's eternal sniping through the big New South Wales forwards, turning them around in defence, was just as important. Jeff Richardson outplayed Tim Pickup in the first half, and in the second half, star New South Wales player Bob Fulton couldn't make much of an inroad on him either. Richardson's long kicking game was instrumental in keeping New South Wales coming out of trouble as opposed to attacking the Queensland try line. And with no BRL fixtures on that next weekend, and after a Queensland win during the week, all eyes were on Lang Park for the second interstate match. And in that return match, New South Wales revamped their side, including the selection of coach Graham Langlands. For 60 minutes, Queensland were on top and gave the crowd and those listening on their radios at home some real hope that they may just win an interstate series. But the New South Wales reshuffle of their team did the job. With a late surge, New South Wales were able to overcome Queensland 27-18. to Queensland had led 14-12 at half-time and 18-12 with just 20 minutes to go. But in a three-minute burst, New South Wales scored twice and went ahead 20-18 to and maintained and eventually extended that lead. After the second interstate match, the Australian side to play New Zealand in an international cup was selected, and Ross Strudwick, Lou Platts, John Lang and David Wright were the Queenslanders selected for the team. Newspaper reports noted that Tim Pickup was a lucky inclusion after Jeff Richardson had completely outplayed him in matches across both interstate series. After Australia defeated New Zealand 36 points to 8, Queensland halfback Ross Strudwick was dropped, sounds like he had a shocker, and Lou Platts relegated to the bench. David Wright suffered a hamstring injury early in the game against New Zealand and wasn't considered for the next game against Wales. The perennial New South Wales selection bias was rearing its ugly head again, but in a turn-up, John Rhodes was called into the team as a replacement winger. On Thursday, May the 29th, the Courier-Mail's Laurie Kavanagh reports, Football was pushed into the background yesterday by a hotel poolside incident early on Tuesday morning involving several Australian rugby league players here to prepare for an international cup match on Sunday. Coloured guests staying at the same top-class city hotel as the Australian team are alleged to have been abused when they went to the pool early on Tuesday. A league spokesman said the three Sydney stars had apologised to other guests at the hotel. 
The hotel itself said that nothing occurred and they'd be happy to have the team back, which indeed they will when they return for the next match. Graham Langlands extended invitations to guests for quiet pre-dinner drinks and when the matter was discussed at board level, the decision was to let the matter lie and not take action against the players because an incident couldn't be proven. Dave, this is 1975, and while Laurie Kavanagh was doing his best to be politically correct, he still wrote Coloured Guests, and I debated with myself whether or not to include that particular quote, but thought that it was probably important to the time frame to use the language of the period that we're discussing. Yeah, no, I think it's important to include that quote, Chris. Uh, We are talking about 1975, and the incident probably highlights, you know, many of the attitudes of people in white Australia. I think a multicultural Australia was still some years away. Yeah, I think that you're probably right on that one. I also think that if nothing happened, as it was noted by the hotel, um, why did we apologise? Who did we apologise to? Mm, (laughs) And uh, why did Langlands offer pre-dinner drinks to guests to make up for something that didn't happen? No, it doesn't stack up, does it? No, not really. Well, we've already made comment a few times about issues being tolerated then that wouldn't be tolerated now. But this is the first time that there was some kind of fallout and public comment about the poor behaviour. Normally it's just a bit of a laugh, like the man in the bowler hat uh, received less condemnation than this incident, which wasn't even able to be proved. That's right, the guy doing the full Monty, but we won't mention his name. You're right, Chris, it does seem that the mid-70s might have been the start of the pendulum swinging in favour of the public knowing what was going on with our sports stars off the field. And one other sports star who was currently off the field was Redcliffe's Robert Orchard. We spoke earlier about him being indefinitely suspended by the club. Now that was in mid-April. At the beginning of June, his contract was eventually sold to Mount Isa. Dick Turner said he believed that Orchard would play in Mount Isa this particular weekend after an agreeable financial arrangement was made this week. It was probably the best outcome for both parties, as Orchard would no doubt want to be playing, but not at the expense of his right to write his own column in the paper. Redcliffe would also want to be able to move forward without the negative energy of one of their star players being suspended while writing negative pieces about the club in a local paper. (laughs) So Redcliffe had a rather rough day on the field at Langlands Park at the same time that Orchard business was finally settled. A visiting English referee controlled a tight game between Easts and Redcliffe and with 12 minutes remaining called Redcliffe's South Queensland representative Chris Mason out for a caution. Mason listened intently to the ref and then tried to have his say about what had transpired, and the ref immediately sent him off. Oh, oh, what's amazing. I'm not sure if it would have made a difference to the outcome of that game, though. East were already up 11-5 at that stage. But the final 12 minutes were quite frantic, with Redcliffe outscoring East 7-3 in those final minutes. So I guess you never know. No. But overall, East were able to maintain their ascendancy to win the game 14-12. And one of the interesting things to come out of that match report uh, was that John Payne was the man who was cooling down his East's teammates and keeping their tempers in check. At one stage, even soothing Des Morris's temper, which was a complete 180-degree turnaround for what was normal for those two players. Mm. I saw plenty of John Payne and Des Morris play, and while we could probably say that Des was usually pretty cool and composed and took each game with a very professional approach, John Payne could not always be called cool and professional. His forte was usually his ability to deal with situations with an off-the-cuff attacking approach to whatever was in front of him. Usually, that could have been a bit of a fiery approach, but not on this occasion. This form of John Payne's had not gone unnoticed, and he was a major contributor to Queensland's success in 75, and he was later rewarded with Australian selection for the test against France. 
Unfortunately for John Payne, though, he remained on the bench for the entire game and didn't get any minutes. And while England and France were in Australia for the first round of the Rugby League World Series, Australia's cricketers were in England for the inaugural Cricket World Cup. Australia were placed in a pool with the West Indies, Pakistan and Sri Lanka. After wins against Pakistan and Sri Lanka, West Indian fast bowler Andy Roberts decimated the Australian batting order and Alvin Kalacharan scored 78 to give the West Indies a seven-wicket win. Australia then played England in the semi-finals, where Australia's all-rounder Gary Gilmore had a field day, taking six wickets and hitting 28 runs off 28 balls to set up the Australian win. Despite another five-wicket haul from Gilmore and Ian Chappell's 62 runs, Australia were no match for the West Indies in the final, who won the World Cup after a Keith Boyce four-wicket haul and a Clive Lloyd century. Dave, that mid-70s West Indies team was pretty hard to beat. I enjoyed watching them play, but I also loved the way the Australian team of that era really fought tooth and nail to get close to them. Yeah, look, um, I'd have to say that was the beginning of my love affair with cricket, a bit of a cricket tragic. Um, Watching Tomo live at the Gabba was a sight to behold as a young bloke. Um, And in the early days of World Series cricket, watching guys like Joel Garner, Viv Richards, Michael Holding and Clive Lloyd, you know, they just totally got me hooked onto cricket, which, um, as I said, I'm still into this day. Yeah, yeah, that was certainly a good time for cricket, that's for sure. Mm. But we're not talking about the Cricket World Cup. That just marked the halfway of the BRL season. And Valleys defeated Toowoomba in their Round 2 Amco Cup match by 15 points to 6. Hugh O'Doherty dominated the scrum count, which gave Valleys plenty of ball to work with, and Fitzpatrick, Strudwick, Jeff Gill and Marty Scanlon led the diehards to the win. Valleys had been in the doldrums all year, but finally, with a fairly large contingent of their better players back on deck at the Redcliffe showgrounds, they fought back from a 5-16 to 16 deficit against Redcliffe to a 16-all scoreline. Then, with a penalty in the final minute of play, Redcliffe winger Peter Flanders kicked the winning goal for the Dolphins after the Hooters sounded to sink the diehards yet again. They had some pretty bad losses in those earlier weeks, Mm. but now with most of their better players back on deck, the rot seemed to have set in and they were unable to win those close games that they would normally win in previous years. Mm. This Redcliffe loss was one of three wins and three close losses in the second half of the season. They just couldn't crack their poor form run and finished, ended up finishing with the wooden spoon. Valley's comeback against Redcliffe wasn't the only comeback in a close match at that time of the season. In the same week, East scored a converted try in the final seconds to force a 24-all draw with the second-place Devils outfit, who had some bad news during the week of training. Yeah, their big state second row or centre, uh, Glenn Harrison, who wasn't overly keen on playing again in 1975, finally relented and said that he'd give it a go and during training that week he broke his ankle, needing an operation and definitely putting an end to his career. Yeah, poor bugger. And at the other end of the table though, Dave, it wasn't only Valleys getting top-line players back from injury. Souths were finally at full strength for the first time in 1975 and were halfway into the season. Despite a close loss to West with their full-strength team on the field for the first time, they found some form and had back-to-back wins over East and Winter Manly. Greg Vivas was back after his eyesight scare and it was the first time he was on the field with John Grant and Graham Atherton who were also both returning from injury. It was good for Souths and for Vivas that he returned to the field of play because by season's end he was playing for Australia in the second round of the World Series. Vivas' Australian selection wasn't on the back of the State Series though. He was injured during the first two State games although he did play that final match in Sydney in July. Regardless of Viva's display in July or the general closeness of the 1975 Interstate Series, the traditional snub of Queensland players from Australian selectors when choosing test sides was still evident. 
Queensland players were given a chance and then discarded one game later, like Strudwick being dropped after a 36-8 win over New Zealand, or John Payne selected and then discarded without even getting onto the field. But at least Queensland players were being given some consideration. John Rhodes, although he played well for Queensland, was selected after great form for Winner Manly to replace the injured Terry Fay. And then John Payne, who also played well for Queensland, had been selected from Brisbane club footy to replace the injured Gary Stevens. Well, week 12, and on June the 22nd, the BRL table was a tale of two halves, with Wests on 18 points, Norths 17, Wynnum 15, and Redcliffe on 14 at the top end of the table, and Easts on 10 points, Brothers 9, Souths 5, and Valleys on 4 in the bottom half. It meant many games were close, and with Valleys and Souths getting some of their better players back from injury, games would become close for the next few weeks. Yeah, that's right, Dave. I mean, the situation of most teams meant that games were closer for this mid-season period. And after the Test match against France on the Saturday, all four BRL games were hosted on the Sunday, and all were nail-biting affairs. At Lang Park, Jack Reardon wrote, In a brilliant final 10 minutes of attacking football, West's rugby league team came back from 8-15 to beat Norths by 20-15 in one of the best games seen at Lang Park this season. And Greg Oliphant, Jeff Richardson and Harry Cameron led the young West's backs like Greg McCarthy and Greg Heading around the field, mounting continual pressure on the Norths' defence. Norths played a different game plan, utilising their bigger forward pack, and for a time it seemed to be successful. But the speed of the West back line proved too much to handle in those final minutes of the game. At Cougarai Oval, David Falkenmeyer reported, Valleys tasted their first rugby league premiership success for nine weeks when they surprised Winner Manly 26-21 in a match of fluctuating fortunes at Cougarai Oval yesterday. Winham looked set for a win after two early tries and the diehards being in the doldrums all year would have suggested that they'd have the right to go on with it. But Valleys came back to go ahead 12-11, then 17-11, and later 24-16 with Winner Manly coming back throughout the game. Ross Strudwick was the best player on the field and he was ably supported by his forward pack, especially Al McGuinness and Mick Rathbone. South stayed off a desperate second half revival by Easts to win their match at Davies Park yesterday, 18-17. And Souths had led 18-4 at half time, and as Easts raced back into the game, scoring three unanswered tries in that second half, Souths had to work hard defensively to hold them off. The big names were to the fore in this game, with Greg Vivas and Gary Dobrik rallying South's charges to repel the onslaught of Rodden Des Morris and John Payne and John Lang. While at Corbett Park, Laurie Kavanagh saw it like this. A late burst after Redcliffe coach Barry Muir had swung on two fresh reserves, boosted the team to a 16-8 win over Brothers at Corbett Park yesterday. Yeah, representative players Tony Obst and Chris Mason were held in reserve by Muir until midway through the second half when they took the field. Brothers were up 8-7, but the fresh impetus of Obst and Mason gave Redcliffe's attack an extra spark, and halfback Chris Anderson, who scored a brilliant individual try, and fullback Bunny Pierce kept the team on track to record the much-needed victory. And after week 12 was complete, the ladder was fairly congested, with Valley's win keeping them just slightly within range of the semi-finals. Remember, we've got our top five in 1975, and with just nine weeks to go in the competition, Valleys were only two and a half wins out of that top five. And they were still well and truly in the running for the semi-finals. The top four included Wests on 18, Norths on 17, Winner Manly on 15 and Redcliffe on 14. There was a slight gap of four points to Easts on 10, Brothers on 9 and Souths on 8, with Valleys in last spot with only five points so far. And as Norths geared up for the crucial match 
with Redcliffe for the President's Cup, they needed to find a replacement for John Sattler. Sattler had been sent off by Eddie Ward for using abusive language after the siren sounded in the game against West last weekend. Sattler's appeal was dismissed during the week, and although Norths could have promoted one of their running back rowers, who were all performing well, instead they promoted Pat Hannon. Pat hadn't played first grade since 1973 and had been out of the top grade football all of 1974, playing only reserve and third grade in 1975. But North selectors saw his size and work ethic as being beneficial to help the outstanding crop of running back row forwards that they had in Steve Calder, Darrell Broman and Les Salter. With Hannon, Mick Walker and Nick Geiger in the front row, North's pack certainly looked capable of taking on the Redcliffe pack and winning. Well, it was certainly enough to take on the Redcliffe pack, but it wasn't quite enough to win, as Redcliffe won the President's Cup by 26-24. to 24. Hannon performed creditably enough, but Redcliffe's overall performance held the day. Leading 14-4 to four near half-time, Redcliffe were attacking North's line and Steve Williams slotted a field goal. A moment later, he kicked another, and Redcliffe went to the break 16-4 to four up. That was the winning margin as Norths came back strongly in the second half, scoring 20 points to 10. The game was a beauty and with scores close, Chris Anderson kept Redcliffe in front by sniping at the Norths defence to keep them turned around and on the back foot. Even so, with moments to play, a smothering ball and all tackle by Peter Lease won the game for Redcliffe, as Norths once more were on the attack. Sattler would be out for a few more weeks as he was due to have a knee operation that might sideline him for five to six weeks, so Pat Hannon might just play a bit more first grade in 1975. And after that Week 13 President's Cup match, Brisbane were to take on Great Britain on Wednesday night in a bruising affair. The Brisbane team ran out 21-10 winners, and that Brisbane team included some old stages and a few newcomers and held their own in that brawling affair. Greg Vivers, John Lang and Des Morris... Steve Bollow and Peter Lease, Lou Platts, Nev Hornery and Keith Smith, Ross Strudwick, Jeff Richardson, Harry Cameron, Wayne Stewart and Gary Thomas were the men entrusted with upholding Brisbane's pride and they did a wonderful job keeping the British at bay both physically and on the scoreboard. After the Brisbane versus Great Britain game, the BRL were into week 14, the final games of round two. Wests beat Valleys on the Saturday, effectively ruling out any chance the diehards might have had after their loss to Easts the previous week as well. It was a stunning fall from grace by the diehards, the 1974 Premiers, but to illustrate just how close the Brisbane competition was, Valley's opponent in last year's Grand Final was in third last spot on the ladder coming into this week, while last year's Wooden Spooners, Wests, were on top of the table. <laughs> At the end of the second round of fixtures, Wests and Norths were both on top of the table, and would contest the Peter Scott Memorial Trophy when they met in the final round of fixtures. Meanwhile, with Winner Manley's wins drying up, East Brothers and Souths were all beginning to get within striking distance of the Seagulls, and the semi-final picture was certainly becoming murky. So with the competition moving into the third round, the table still had West on top with 24 points, North second with 21, Redcliffe next on 18, then Wynnum on 17, and brothers East and Souths fighting out for that fifth spot with just four points between the three of them. The semi-final race was really heating up. In week 16, the lead changed several times during Brothers-Souths match and eventually... Brothers snatched a deserved 21-19 rugby league victory of Souths in a gripping match at Lang Park yesterday. In the first home game against Norths in 10 years, Valley celebrated the auspicious occasion with a win. 
Due to the quality of both teams over the past 10 years, many of their games have been scheduled for Lang Park. But as Valleys have struggled in the 1975 season, the rare home ground match gave them a chance to enjoy the fruits of their labour on a Sunday afternoon at Newman Oval. It was perfect for the diehards to build some form and confidence going into an Amco Cup quarter-final against Parramatta the following week. Meanwhile, the ARL announced that while the Rugby League World Series was to continue in the Northern Hemisphere during the Australian off-season, and it was likely that Australia would take 22 players, Queensland won one of the two interstate games in Brisbane, and Brisbane beat Great Britain at the beginning of July. If Queensland were to win the return match in Sydney, how many Queenslanders would be selected in that World Series team to travel to England and France? Oh, out of 22? Is that a rhetorical question, Dave? <laughs> uh, I can assume that Queensland would get three or four tourists out of 22. That would be a maximum, I would say. Yep. And that number would be pretty much the same whether they won or didn't win in Sydney. Yep. If they won, selectors would just select different players from the Sydney competition instead of taking deserving Queenslanders. My bitterness on this front is starting to show up in this episode, but this is one of the years where New South Wales didn't show true dominance. Queensland selectors would be fair to their country players when city teams wouldn't, couldn't dominate the city-country matches, and country players would then gain selection in Queensland teams. I don't know why the Australian selectors never saw the quality of the player or the quality of their competition on this side of the border either due to bloody-mindedness or because they lived in Sydney and rarely saw the quality of player playing in Brisbane. The New South Wales-based national selectors just didn't seem to rate the Queensland-based players and they'd stump for different players that they saw regularly in their Sydney-based competition. Yeah, for an easygoing guy, Chris, your bitterness is definitely showing through there. My childhood was just when the state of origin was brought in and I remember the excitement of that first game in 1980. Yeah, well... The bitterness probably comes back to the raw deal Queensland players received in 74 as well. In 74, New South Wales won the first game after Queensland had a player sent off. And then both the second and third matches were drawn. And Queensland had four players selected to play in the Grace Britain Test Series. That's not four players in the first test. That's four players across the whole series. Yeah. Ray Higgs was dropped after the first game and John Lang was promoted into the starting team. Great Britain won the second game and then Lang, Jeff Richardson and Warren All were all dropped and a New South Wales-based Australian team took on the British in the final test. Things are no different in 1975. Queensland won one game by six points, lost the next by nine, and they lost the decider by nine points to eight. No thrashings in either game, so again, the two teams could be considered fairly even. But in a year when Australia played eight matches, Queensland had a total of David Wright, Ross Strudwick, John Rhodes, John Lang, Lou Platts, Greg Vivers and John Payne selected to play for Australia. And Payne never even took the field, discarded after one match on the bench. I don't doubt the quality of the players from New South Wales who get selected to play for Australia. But if a team was selected on form, Queensland would have had a number of players selected and they'd have been retained after a good performance. Okay, rant over. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you got that out of your system, Chris. Uh, despite no, 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 Dave. <laughs> it's not out of my system. I'm just not going to talk about it. Okay. Rightio, we'll put that under wraps for now. Um, and despite being very confident and saying that Queensland would win in the papers leading up to the match, Barry Muir watched New South Wales score the only try in that 9-8 to eight win over Queensland. So only one point in it. And Muir was very happy with the effort of his players, but the series win continued to elude them. Most Queenslanders put up a sterling effort and the back line particularly outplayed the majority of their New South Wales opposites. They did lose the series, but the overall performance of Queensland players was fairly comparable to their New South Wales counterparts.
In a 22-man squad, Queensland should be guaranteed at least seven or eight players after a series so closely contested, we reckon. Although Lou Platts played in Auckland, only Lang, Vivas and Rhodes were selected in any of the games in the Northern Hemisphere. I need to move away from rep footy for a bit, Dave. And yeah. uh, what better way to lift the spirits than to watch Valleys play? <laughs> <laughs> well, very few spirits were lifted for Valleys fans in 75. Although Valleys secured themselves a $3,350 prize from the Amco Cup pool when they went down to Parramatta 33-10 in the quarterfinal. Speedy winger Doug Muir flew over for the first try of the match after a long cutout pass from Marty Scanlon. But from then on, Parramatta secured more possession and with it, control of the game. Right, uh, take a breath, mate. And just regroup a bit while we jump back into the BRL. The competition was moving into week 17 now, and Winner Manly were going into their matchup with Easts at Lang Park in the Saturday match of the round with a completely different looking back row combination. The all representative back row of Nev Hornery, Bob Clapham, and Lou Platts were all out injured. Instead, Wynnum had shifted regular halfback Gary Seaton, who started his career in the forwards, into the second row, and promoted Des Lee from reserve grade. Seaton would be partnered in the back row by Ian Ogborne and Don Eagle. In other news coming out of Cougarai Oval, coach Tom Berry had sacked representative winger Keith Smith. Berry had a stern conversation with the team on the Tuesday night and told them that they needed to be more focused on their preparation and doing the little things well. Smith turned up to training an hour late, so he was dropped to reserve grade. Smith said he wouldn't play reserve grade, but Warren Hodges was promoted to play first grade in his stead. Des Lee was forced to withdraw with a dislocated thumb, and late in the first half, Wynnum's 5'8", Bob Hardy, was replaced by Jim Fredrickson. With scores tight at four points to three, Fredrickson combined with Gary Seaton to almost put on a try for Wynnum, but from the ensuing play, East's Rob Clark intercepted and ran away to score for East's. This put the Tigers on their way to a win, and with sustained pressure, East proved way, way too strong for the depleted Winner Manly team, winning 27 points to four. On the Sunday, Valleys were fighting to avoid the wooden spoon. Brothers were fighting to regain their spot in the top five, and Wests were aiming at 12 wins in a row when they took on Redcliffe in the Sunday match of the round. Well, the diehards were boosted by the fact that Norm Clark was playing his 100th game, and Clark responded, kicking seven goals from 10 attempts. All up, there were 12 shots at goal taken from penalties awarded. Still, Valleys were able to score four tries and... Vastly improved prop forward Bruce McLeod had another top game for Valleys, playing a real arty beats and roll. It was enough for Valleys to beat Souths 26-21. Brothers would have to wait another week for their opportunity to leapfrog East into fifth spot as Norths went to town in their Week 17 matchup, winning 42-17. Norths three quarters, Eric Lilly... Hale, Warwick and fullback Wraith excelling on the back of fantastic debut from young forward Doug Drew. But all eyes were on Lang Park where West were trying to win 12 in a row and Redcliffe coach Barry Muir was out to stop the winning run of his former pupil Ron Raper. Muir's efforts were to no avail as West invoked memories of 1972. In 72 that Norm Pope coached West's team had taken all before them until the semi-finals when a couple of key forward injuries stopped their run. But the 75 Ron Raper coached Panthers defeated the Dolphins 34 to 19. In 1975, Ron Raper and his charges were determined to cha change that part of history. The Courier Mail sports headline asked the question, Who will beat them? Wests win 12 in a row. 
Twelve in a row put Wests well and truly on the top of the table. The rest of the ladder was tight, and with the BRL trial in the use of the top five system, it brings this closer together. This meant that with just four weeks remaining, if Easts lost all of their remaining games and Valleys won all of their remaining games, Valleys could still make the semi-finals by one point. But at the top of the table, Wests were riding high on 28, Norths on 23, only one more win from securing their semi-final spot. After those two teams came Redcliffe on 18, Wynnum on 17, Easts on 16 and Brothers on 15. Almost out of the running were Souths on 10 and Valleys on 9. And after the Saturday game was completed in week 18, Valleys were no longer an outside possibility to make the semis. A Tony Obst inspired Redcliffe made sure of that, while securing their spot in the top three with a 23-17 win. And just in case no one at Stones Corner read the paper on Sunday to see if Valleys had been put out of the running, East went on their own rampage to solidify a top five spot by downing North's 28-18. In a triumphant comeback from a knee injury, East centre Wayne Watts scored 21 of East's 28 points. And despite East's win, Brothers were still determined to break into that top five and their 15-5 defeat of Wynnum Manley brought them that one step closer with Wynnum Manley now dropping into dangerous territory of possibly missing out on finals footy. Last week the headline was... Who will beat them? This week the headline was... Magpies answer the $64 league question. With Daryl Vanderveld leading the way, South scored five tries to two and dominated after gaining the upper hand through the torrid early exchanges. The Magpies took on that might of that Western Suburbs team and they made sure that every post was a winner running out winners of the Western Suburbs team that had been, to this point, beating everybody that stood before them. This put Brothers and Wynnum equal fifth on the ladder, just a point behind Easts. And with only three weeks to go, Souths were a very remote possibility of winning their way through to the semi-finals. But it was a remote chance, needing to win every game and having Brothers and Wynnum both required to lose all of their remaining games. So going into week 19, Wynnum were up against a Valleys team with nothing to play for except pride, and Brothers would travel to Redcliffe to take on the Dolphins, while Norths were preparing to take on Wests in the Peter Scott Memorial Trophy game. Some tough love was on the cards at Bishop Park, as Tommy Bishop led a team meeting for all players, and they were encouraged to speak openly about each other's performances to try to get them in the right frame of mind for that Peter Scott Memorial Trophy match with Wests on the Sunday. Tommy Bishop said about the sessions... Everyone had his say, but they also had to cop what teammates had to say about them. I've got to take it like the rest. We can all learn from listening. The final five race was ever narrowing as teams were eliminated from the race or guaranteed positions in the semi-finals. East beat Souths on the Saturday of week 19 to rule the Magpies out. Wynnum beat Valleys and Brothers lost to Redcliffe to put Wynnum in the driver's seat for fifth spot. Norths blew the Brisbane Rugby League Premiership wide open yesterday when they convincingly defeated leaders Wests 25-16 in a thrilling Peter Scott Memorial Trophy match at Lang Park yesterday. Well, that was two losses in a row to Wests, and now with only two games to go, Brothers were still a chance of making the semi-finals, and Eastern and Wynnum were the only two teams in the running to drop out of the current top five. The latter was West 28, Norths 25, Redcliffe 22, all secure in the top five and then followed Easts on 20, Wynnum on 19, Brothers on 17, and out of the running were Souths on 11 and Valleys on 9. Barry Muir had two state players on the bench as fresh reserves for Redcliffe's game against Norths. 
Peter Lease was returning from an enforced layoff to freshen him up, and Chris Mason was selected as a fresh reserve who would give the Dolphins some attacking punch when he got on. But in the three games that count towards the makeup of the final two semi-final spots, Brothers were gearing up to take on Wests to try and climb into the semi-finals, while Wynnum and Easts were both looking to leave them out in the cold with a win against Souths and Valleys, respectively. And unfortunately for Brothers fans, they'd need to wait a day longer when their game against Wests at Lang Park was moved from Saturday at league headquarters to Corbett Park on Sunday because the Lang Park surface was too wet. But when that Sunday, August 17, 1975, was completed, the BRL top five semi-final contestants were all set in stone. East had beaten Valleys, Wynnum had beaten Souths, and Brothers lost to Wests, ensuring that East and Wynnum's top grade semi-final berths were there. So going into the final round, the question mark wasn't on who was in the top five, but who would gain the coveted third spot, which in a top five system had two chances to progress through to the grand final. Norths regained their hold on second spot with a win over Winner Manley, ensuring Wynnum remained in fifth spot. But all was not gloom at Wynnum. Nev Hornery was playing reserve grade on his way back from injury, as Bob Hardy also played reserve grade on his way back from injury, and Brisbane second rower Bob Clappen was returning from injury in third grade. Their semi-final team may look very different from the team that lost to Norths in the final week of the season. In other games in that final week, East beat Brothers in a close match that reached no dizzying heights. And Redcliffe and West were warming up with 40-point wins over Souths and Valleys. Valleys secured the wooden spoon after being grand finalists for the past six years, including four premierships. Henry Holloway decided not to exercise his option for another year and went to coach in North Queensland. It was a sad end to his time at Valleys that had been so successful. The two bottom place teams in the BRL in 1975 were coached by two of the most outstanding thinkers the game has ever seen. Henry Holloway and Harry Bath at Souths, which goes to show just how close that BRL competition really was. Yeah, and in a show of changing fortunes, last year's Premier's Valleys appeared frustrated after Hugh O'Doherty and Bruce McLeod were both sent off during West's romp that included a four-try haul by fullback Greg McCarthy. Conversely, last year's Wooden Spooners Wests had just secured the club championship and took home to Pertell Park cash prizes for scoring the most tries in the season at 87. The most points in the season, 473, and for having the least points scored against them from the season, 296. The last time Wests were this clear at the top of the table winning awards left, right and centre was back in 1972. But 1972 wasn't spoken about at Pertell Park. Their focus was all on 1975. So the teams making up the final five in first grade were Wests, Norths, Redcliffe, Easts and Wynnum Manly. And in reserve grade, those sides were Norths, Wynnum, Redcliffe, Valleys and Brothers. And in C grade, Wests, Souths, Norths, Wynnum and Redcliffe. And in the fourth versus fifth knockout semi-final, Wynnum Manly and East put on a great game. Jack Reardon described it as... The best game of the season. Hard fought, close all the way and certainly the fastest game of the season. Well, Bob Patterson, the winner Manly fullback, swept into a backline movement and raced 30 metres in a diagonal run to the corner, where he scored the winning try, putting Wynnum up 8-7. Patterson then kicked a field goal to bring the winning margin to 9-7, and the Seagulls would move on to the next week of the finals. In reserve grade, Valleys progressed, beating Brothers 12-7, and in C grade, Wynnum defeated Redcliffe 24-5. 
The next day in a quagmire at Lang Park, Tommy Bishop and Jeff Wraith, North's English duo, revelled in the conditions and led the Devils into the major semi-final with Wests after beating Redcliffe 15-2. The reserve grade game was equally as devastating for Redcliffe who were beaten by Wynnum 16-8, while in third grade, North's beat Souths 7-4. And that forced Redcliffe to take on a confident Wynnum-Manley side in the knockout semi-final. While Ken Churchill, Barry McTaggart, Lou Platts and John Dowling were superb up front, and according to Jack Reardon, Bob Patterson at fullback had a super game. It wasn't enough to keep the run going as Redcliffe took out the game 22-15 after a Bunny Pierce late try sealed the Seagulls' fate. In reserve grade, Valleys beat Redcliffe 9-7 and Winner Manley won the third grade game, beating Souths to progress to the preliminary final. So the following day on Sunday, West took another step closer to their dream of premiership glory with a 21-11 defeat of Norths in the major semi-final. While West's attack had been lauded all year, in one section of the semi-final, West defended for 30 tackles as a hand or foot touched the ball to restart the tackle count time after time. Norths could not penetrate, and when Eddie Ward ordered a scrum after 30 tackles, the crowd gave West a great ovation. In reserve grade, Winner Manley won their way through to the grand final with a 19-9 win over Norths, and in third grade, West also beat Norths to win their way through to the grand final with a 17-9 win. So that pitted Norths and Redcliffe against each other in the preliminary final. Norths held a slender lead of just 2-0 at half-time, but the second half saw Redcliffe score five unanswered tries to take the game 25 points to two and book a date with Wests in the grand final. The Dolphins had absorbed all that Norths could throw at them, and with more ball in the second half, they let loose with some scintillating attack. In reserve grade, Norths booked a rematch with Winner Manley by defeating Valleys 17-6, and in the third grade match, Winner Manley booked themselves a spot in the grand final with a 26-0 win over Norths. So grand final day was fine, and the matchup of coaches of Barry Muir and Ron Raper was the talk of the town. What they were missing by focusing on Muir's relationship with former player Raper was the brilliance of the two backlines at play and the uncompromising forward play of both forward packs. The day began well for Winner Manley when they took out the grand final in third grade by 22-13 over Wests. And in reserve grade, Winner Manley made it two from two with a win over Norths by 23-9. The A-grade side of 1975 believed that they had the ability to win the grand final in 75 as well. But they were tackling some deep-seated demons at Cougarai Oval and fell short during the final series. The first grade match started well on that grand final day for West with a penalty goal. And then, when on the attack, a Redcliffe player flew out of the defensive line to try and tackle Jeff Richardson before he had a chance to do anything damaging. For a guy with the silky smooth hands of Jeff Richardson, a player shooting out of the line like that was just what he needed to put Harry Cameron through the gap that was opened up. And Cameron scored the first try of the grand final after eight minutes. And a Wayne Stewart conversion, West were up 7-0. Stewart and Bunny Pierce traded penalty goals, but West were on top in open play. Jeff Richardson was superb setting his outside men alight and Greg Heading and Harry Cameron were most adept at running through the gaps that Richardson created for them. In one movement, Richardson offloaded in the tackle, putting Heading through a gap. He linked up with Cameron, who drew the cover and linked with Rod Bradshaw, who scored the try for Wests. And with only eight minutes to play in the first half, Wests were up 14-2. Again, Pierce and Stewart traded penalty goals and in the shadows of half-time, Max Williamson stood in a tackle, offloaded to his brother Henry, who looked like his older brother Australian winger Lionel as he raced away over 50 metres dash to the try line. Unfortunately for the older Williamson, 
he wasn't as fast as his brother Lionel, and he was brought down in a despairing tackle by Redcliffe fullback Tony Obst. Livewire fullback Greg McCarthy was up into the dummy half position, and he dummied inside to a forward runner and ducked out the blind side, where he dummied again to support players outside him and got just enough space to squeeze through and score a try. Stewart was unsuccessful with the conversion from out wide, but Wests were up 19-4 at the break. After being dominated in the first half, Redcliffe began the second half on the end of another penalty goal to Wayne Stewart, and the score blew out to 21-4. But after nine minutes and a Tony Obbs try, Redcliffe was somewhat back in the game, with the score now 21-9. But it seemed Wests had rested the game back into control, as only minutes later, Stewart kicked another penalty to go ahead by 23 points to nine. And moments after that, Max Williamson charged ahead off a Greg Oliphant pass. And when he wasn't tackled, he offloaded back to Oliphant, who passed to Richardson. And Richardson sent a long spiral pass out to Greg Heading in some space. Heading's speed took him to the corner post just before the Redcliffe defence could get there. And West were ahead, 26-9, with little more than 20 minutes to play. After Vic Tyre was tackled about seven or eight metres from the line, Bunny Pierce popped into dummy half and with nothing on, he accelerated quickly straight out of dummy half and speared through the West defence to score. He converted his try and with 19 minutes to play, Wests were ahead 26 to 14. Barry Muir had been using fresh reserves with great success throughout the season and the grand final was no different. Fresh reserves Peter Leese, Jeff Russell and Chris Mason put Steve Bullow into a gap. Bullow returned the ball to Mason who ran into another half gap, drawing in the defence before sending it wide to hooker Bob Jones. Jones sent it to Ian Tiny who was almost over when he was tackled beautifully by fullback McCarthy. But with the ball in two hands, he popped it back inside to a supporting Jeff Russell who scored for Redcliffe. Now with 11 minutes to play, Redcliffe were down by 19 to 26 and full of running. With only three minutes to play, Jeff Russell sent the ball out wide to Bevan Bleakley, who stormed through the West defence over a 30 metre run to score in the corner. Bunny Pierce kicked the goal and Redcliffe were only two points out of the game with two minutes to play and a kickoff to receive. The Dolphins used their six tackles with the ball in hand and despite efforts to offload, were eventually tackled near centre field around halfway, forcing a scrum for the last tackle. Being still in their own half, Jeff Russell fed the ball for Redcliffe and with the full-time hooter sounding, Ian Tiny threw a beautiful diving pass from the scrum base, reminiscent of the great rugby union halfback Ken Catchpole to Steve Williams. Williams put up a high up and under, but, but as the, the hooter sounded, kids were run, already pouring onto the field with the ball still in the air. West fullback Greg McCarthy ran to defuse the bomb, but with kids all around and fast approaching Redcliffe chases, it was hard to tell who had the ball or where it ended up. But eventually, it was noted over the sideline, and West had won the game 26 to 24. Of the match, the Courier Mail said, "In the most exciting finish to a grand final since Jeff Fife kicked his famous field goal in 1972, Wests hung on just long enough to beat Redcliffe 26 to 24." And that was after West had led 19-4 at half-time. The storming finish from Redcliffe had the crowd of 40,000 barracking their heads off. So it was congratulations to Ron Raper and Western Suburbs for completing the deed that they couldn't manage to complete in 1972. In a season of dominance, it was fitting that the Panthers made it through to the grand final this time, and at a dominant 60 minutes in that game was enough to hang on and win the Kirks Cup. In the Australian team for New Zealand and the World Series in the Northern Hemisphere, John Rhodes, Lou Platts and Greg Vivas were selected from Queensland. 
John Lang was unavailable to tour New Zealand for family reasons, as his wife was expecting their first child, but Lang said he would be available for matches in England if required. He was selected to tour England, and he was used in one of those games. Jack Reardon felt that Queensland halves Ross Strudwick and Jeff Richardson were particularly hard done by, as both had proved over the past two years that they were equal to, and in many cases better performed, than the New South Wales halves put up against them. And Richardson's display in the BRL Grand Final was masterful. Yeah, I'd have to agree. Watching the um, highlights of the Grand Final of 1975, Jeff Richardson was absolutely outstanding. And... I just defy anybody to say that he wasn't good enough to have been playing in an Australian jersey that year. It's yep. just ridiculous. Anyway, I'm not talking about that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going there again. Four players go. in a squad of 22 after Queensland had won one game, lost the series decider by 9-8. And there were plenty of Queensland players who were good enough to be on that tour. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. That's enough for us for this episode. That is 1975 in the bank. Congratulations to the Western Suburbs Panthers. Thanks very much for listening. Our next episode will be a discussion around the players of 1975 and after stellar performances by the state team and a number of club sides, there'll be a few of them worth mentioning. Thanks very much to Dave Teagle for your help with this episode. No worries. Great, great season, 1975. Yeah. If you enjoyed the podcast, please jump onto the platform that you listen to and give us a rating and a review so others can find us too. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any episodes and share the word, spread it around, let people know BRL Moments in Time so that we can uh, find out what people want to do. If you want to get in touch with us here at Moments in Time, you can contact us via our website and via the social media pages. Just search BRL-Moments-in-Time on Facebook and on Instagram and you can contact us there or on our website which is BRL-MomentsInTime.com. This podcast was developed and produced on the lands of the Yagara, Yugara and Yagarapal people of the Ipswich region. We acknowledge and pay respect to their traditional custodians. Come on and see, come on and see, West Panthers by duty. Come on and see, come on and see, they're the best that's ever been. Take a pass around the hall like you've never seen before. Keep your dodge and run, and with all the scrubs and more. They are the bestest team of all in league football. Come on and see, come on and see. The Panthers fighting for their cause. Come on and see, come on and see. The Panthers sharpen up their claws. Be sure to wear the red and black and Come on to see, come on to see, West Panthers mighty team. Come on to see, come on to see, the Panthers flying up to the end. Cause they're the team, cause they're the team, who simply will not bend. That if you want to know the team to win the grand.